Chapter 15 Europe in the Middle Ages by Ierna Lifford Plunkett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 15 Learning and Ecclesiastical Organization in the Middle Ages. The word progress implies to modern men and women a moving forward towards a perfection as yet unknown, freshly imagined indeed by each generation. To the Middle Ages it meant rather appearing back through the mists of barbarian invasions to an idealized Christian Rome. Inspiration lay in the past, not merely in such political conceptions as the Holy Roman Empire, but in the domain of art and thought where too often tradition laid her choking grip upon originality struggling for expression. The painting of the early Middle Ages was stereotyped in the stiff, though beautiful, models of Byzantium that fathers of the church had insisted, by means of decrees passed at church councils, should be considered as fitting representations of Christian subjects for all time. Less impressive, but more lifelike were the illuminations of missals and holy books that in illustrating the gospels or lives of the saints reproduced the artist's own surroundings the noble he could see from the window of his cell riding by with hawk or hounds the laborer sowing or delving the merchant with his money-bags the man of fashion trailing his furred gown vignettes such as these were their neat craftsmanship of line and color their almost photographic love of detail, lend a reality to our glimpses of life in Europe from the 12th to the 14th centuries. Yet, great as is the debt we owe them, the real art of the Middle Ages was not consummated with a brush, but with the builder's tools and the sculptor's chisel. Like the painters, the architect's impulse was at first almost entirely religious, though guild halls and universities followed on the erection of churches and monasteries. Nourished on St. Augustine's belief in this life as a mere transitory journey toward the eternal city of God, medieval men and women saw this pilgrimage encompassed with a vast army of devils and saints ranged in constant battle for the human soul. Only through faith and the kindly assistance of the saints could man hope to beat off the legions of hell which hung like a pack of wolves about his footsteps, and nowhere with greater efficacy than in the sanctuary from which human prayer arose daily to God's throne. Churches and chapels in modern times have become the property of a section of the public, that is, those who think or believe in a certain way, and sometimes through poverty of purse or spirit, through bad workmanship or material, the architecture that results is shoddy or insignificant. In the Middle Ages, his parish church was the most certain fact in every Christian's existence, from the day he was carried to the font for baptism until his last journey to rest beneath its shadow. Here he would make his confessions, his vows of repentance and amendment, and offer his worship and thanksgiving. Here he would often find a fortified refuge from the violence in the street outside, a school, a granary, a parish council chamber. What more natural than that medieval artists, their souls attuned with the hopes and fears of their age, should realize their genius best in constructing and ornamenting buildings that were, to all citizens alike, the symbol of their belief. Let us build, said the people of Siena in the 13th century, 
such a church to the glory of god that all men shall wonder the cathedral when completed was but a third in size and grandeur of the original design for the black death fell upon siena and carried off her builders in the midst of their work yet it remains magnificently arresting to modern eyes as though the faith of those who planned and fashioned its slabs of black and white marble for the love of god and their city had breathed into their workmanship something of the medieval soul the same is true of notre dame de la victoire in paris founded by philip augustus of which victor hugo says each face each stone is a page of history it is true of nearly all medieval churches that have outlived the ravages of war and fire memorials of an age that if it lacked behind our own in ultimate achievement was preeminent in one art at least ecclesiastical architecture where the architect stopped the medieval sculptor took up his work at first with simple severity but later in a riot of imagination that people facades vaulted roofs and capitals of columns with the angels demons and hybrid monsters that haunted the fancy of the day the flying buttress the invention of which made possible lofty clerestories with vast expanses of window brought to perfection another art the painting of glass here also the medieval artist excelled and the crucibles in which he mixed the colors that hold us wrapped before the windows of lyon albi and chartres still keep unsolved the secret of their transparent delicacy and depth in the architecture the sculpture and in the stained glass of the middle ages we see original genius at work but in learning and culture europe was slower to throw off the giant influence of rome even under the crushing inroads of barbarian ignorance italy had managed to keep alive the study of classical authors and of roman law latin remained the language of the educated man or woman the language in which the services of the church were recited sermons were preached correspondence carried on business transacted and students in universities and schools addressed by their professors the advantages of a common tongue can be imagined the comparative ease with which a pope or king could keep in touch with bishops or subjects of a different race the accessibility of the best books to students of all nations since scarcely a medieval author of repute would condescend to employ his own tongue above all perhaps the ease with which an ambassador a merchant or a pilgrim could make himself understood on a journey across europe instead of torturing his brain with struggles after the right word in first one foreign dialect and then another this classical form so rigidly withholding knowledge from the grasp of the ignorant had also its disadvantage for many a medieval pen that could have flown across vellum in joyful intimacy in its owner's tongue stumbled clumsily amidst latin constructions leaving in the end not a spontaneous record of current events but a dry-as-dust catalogue in bad imitation of some latin stylist the modern world is more grateful to medieval culture for such lapses as dante's divina commedia than for all the heavy latin tomes whose authors hope for laureled immortality for those in england and france who could not easily master latin or found its stately periods too cumbrous for ordinary conversation french descended from the spoken latin of the roman soldier or merchant in gaul 
was in the middle ages as today the language of polite society it possessed two distinct dialects the langue de oil and the langue de Oc, so called because the northern frenchman including the norman was supposed to pronounce we oui as will while his southern fellow countrymen pronounced it as Oc. england where ever since the conquest of william i french had been the natural tongue of a semi-foreign court owed an enormous literary impulse to the langue de oil during the twelfth and thirteenth centuries while the langue de Oc that gave its name to a district in the south of france shared its poetry and romance between provencals and catalans the descendants of the former are today french of the latter spanish but in the eleventh century they were fellow subjects of the counts of toulouse who ruled over a district stretching from the source of the rhone to the mediterranean from the italian apse to the ebro in this semi-independent kingdom there developed a civilization and culture of hothouse growth precocious in its appreciation of the less violent pleasures of life such as love art music literature but often corrupt in their enjoyment the gay court of toulouse paid no heed to st augustine's hell whose fears haunted the rest of europe in its more thoughtful moments joyous and inconsequent it lived for the passing hour and out of its atmosphere of dalliance and culture was born a race of poet singers these troubadours sang of love whose silken fetters could hold and thrall knights and fair ladies and their golden lyrics now plaintive now gay were carried to the crowded cities of italy and spain or found schools of imitators elsewhere as in germany amongst her thirteenth-century minnesingers or love-singers in the north of france and in england appeared minstrels also but their themes were less of love than of battle and audiences reveled by castle and campfire in the jests or deeds of charlemagne and his paladins the chivalry of arthur and his knights or in stirring border ballads such as chevy chase the market-place the camp and the baronial hall where were sung or recited these often imaginary stories of the past were the schools of the many unlettered just as the conversation of arabs and jews around the desert fires had stimulated the imagination of the young mohammed but for the few who could afford a sounder education there were the universities paris bologna oxford to name but three of the most famous the word universitas implied in the middle ages a union of men such a corporation as the guilds formed by fishmongers and drapers to protect their trade interests and the universities had indeed originated for a similar purpose cities today that have universities in their midst are proud of the fact and welcome new students but in early medieval times an influx of young men of all ages from every part of europe many of them wild and unruly some so poor that they must beg or steal their daily bread was at first sight a very doubtful blessing street fights between nationalities who hated one another on principle or between bands of students and citizens were a common occurrence in the towns that learning honored with their presence and had their usual accompaniment of broken heads fires and looting but for the universitas formed by the masters and students to control and protect their members these centers of education would probably have been stamped out 
by indignant tradesmen. As it was, they had to fight for their existence. Municipalities looked with no lenient eye upon a corporation that seemed to them a state within a state, threatening their own right to govern all within the city. It was not until after many generations that they understood the meaning of the word cooperation, that is, the possibility of assisting instead of hindering the work of the universitas. Sometimes a king, like Philip Augustus, insisted on toleration by granting to his students the privilege of clergy. But as the university grew, it became able to enforce its own lessons. In the 13th century, the masters of Paris closed their lecture halls and led away their flock in protest for what they considered unfair treatment by the city authorities during a riot, and their absence taught Parisians that, in spite of head-breakings, the students were an asset, not a loss to municipal life. Under the protection, therefore, of a papal bull, they returned a few weeks later in triumph to the Latin Quarter. It was only by degrees that colleges where the student could live were erected, or that anything resembling the elaborate organization of a modern university was evolved. Students lodged where they could, and masters lived on the goodwill of those who paid their fees, and starved if their popularity waned and with it their audience. The life of both teacher and pupil was vague and hazardous, with a background of poverty and crime lurking at the street corners to ruin the unwary or foolish. Nor was the period of study a mere passing sojourn like some modern terms. The Bachelor of Arts at Oxford or Paris must be a student of five years' standing. The Master of Arts calculated on devoting three years more to gaining his final degree. A Doctor of Theology would be faced with eight years' hard work at least. It might almost be said that higher education under these circumstances became a profession. To Bologna, the greatest of the Italian universities, went those who wished to study Roman law at the fountainhead. This does not mean to stir up the legal dust of a dead empire out of a student's curiosity, but to master a living system of law that barbarian invaders had gradually crafted onto their own national codes. In the 11th century, the laws of Justinian were as much or more revered than in his own day. We have seen that Frederick Barbarossa set the lawyers of Bologna to work to justify from old legal documents the claims he wished to establish over Lombardy, and when they had succeeded to his satisfaction, he rewarded them with gifts and knighthood, showing what value he put on their achievement. This is a very good example of the respect felt by medieval minds for the laws and title deeds of an earlier age even though the tyranny that resulted led the Lombard League to dispute such claims. Still more closely allied than the civil codes of Europe to the old Roman legal texts was the canon law of the church that had been based directly upon classic models, and with the rise of Hildebrand's worldwide ambitions, its decisions assumed a growing importance and demanded an enormous army of trained lawyers to interpret and arrange them. For youths of a practical and ambitious turn of mind, here was a course of study leading to a profession profitable in all ages, and a textbook was provided for such budding lawyers in the Decretum of Gratian, a monk who in the 12th century 
compiled a full and authoritative text of canon law. The existence of the ecclesiastical courts in which canon law was administered we have already mentioned in discussing the quarrel of Henry II of England and Thomas Becket. Founded originally to deal with purely ecclesiastical cases and officials, they tended in time to draw within their competence anyone over whom the church could claim protection and any causes that affected the rights of the Catholic Church. It was a wide net with a very small mesh, as the Angevin Henry II and other lay rulers of Europe found. The protection that spread its wings over priests and clerks stretched also to crusaders, widows, and orphans. The jurisdiction of the church courts claimed not merely the moral questions such as heresy, sacrilege, and perjury, but all matters connected with probate of wills, marriage and divorce, and even libel. Rome became a hive of ecclesiastical lawyers, with the Pope, like the Roman emperors of old, the supreme lawgiver and final court of appeal for all church courts of Europe. His rule was absolute, at least in theory, for by his power of dispensation he could set aside, if he considered advisable, the very canon law his office administered. He could also summon to his curia, or papal court, any case on which he wished to pronounce judgment, at whatever stage in its litigation in an inferior ecclesiastical court. Under the Pope, in an ordered hierarchy, corresponding to the feudal arrangement of lay society, came the metropolitans, who received from his hand, or from those of his legates, the narrow woolen scarf or pallium that was the symbol of their authority. Next in order came the diocesan bishops, with their officials, the archdeacons, and rural deans, each with their own court and measure of jurisdiction. The Pope's will went forth to Christendom in the form of letters called bulls, from the bulla or heavy seal that was attached to them. Against those who paid no heed to their contents, he could hurl either the weapon of excommunication, that is, of personal outlawry from the church, or else, if the offender were a king or a city, the still more blasting interdict that fell on ruler and ruled alike. The land that groaned under an interdict was bereft of all spiritual comfort. No priest might say public mass, baptize a newborn child, perform the marriage service, console the dying with supreme unction, or bury the dead. The very church bells would ring no more. It was under this pressure of spiritual starvation when the saints seemed to have withdrawn their sheltering arms and the demons to have gathered joyfully to a harvest of lost souls that John of England was brought by the curses of his people to turn to Rome in repentance and submission. Yet, as in the case of most weapons, familiarity bred contempt and too frequent use of powers of interdict and excommunication was to blunt their efficacy. A Frederick II, the oft-excommunicated, proved able to conquer Jerusalem and dominate Italy even under the papal ban. The Church, in her claims to a world empire, demanded in truth an obedience it was beyond her ability to enforce. She also laid herself open to temptations to which, from the nature of her temporal ambitions, she must inevitably succumb. No such elaborate or expensive administration as emanated from Mercuria could continue without an inexhaustible flow of money into her treasury. 
lawyers priests legates cardinals the pope himself each had to be maintained in a state befitting their office in the eyes of the world as ready in the thirteenth century as in the twentieth to judge by appearances and offer its homage accordingly in addition to the ordinary expenses of a ruler whose court was a centre of religious and intellectual life for europe there was the constant burden of war first with neighbouring italian rulers and then with the empire innocent four triumphed over the hohenstaufen but largely by dipping his hands into english money-bags to such an extent indeed during the reign of john's son henry the third that england gained the scoffing name of the milk cow of the papacy at first when the ecclesiastical courts had offered to criminals a justice at once more humane and comprehensive than the rough-and-ready tyranny of a king or feudal lord the upholders of the rights of canon law were regarded as popular heroes later however with the growth of national feeling and the development and better administration of the civil codes men and women began to falter in their allegiance canon law was found to be both expensive and tardy especially in the case of appeals that is of cases called from some inferior court to rome the key also to the judgments given at rome was often too obviously gold and of heavy weight nor was justice alone to be bought or sold a large part of the money that filled the roman treasury was derived from benefices and livings in different countries of europe that had by one means or another accumulated in papal hands the constant pressure of the wars with emperors and italian ghibellines made it necessary for the popes to administer this patronage as profitably as possible and so the spiritual needs of dioceses and parishes became sacrificed to the military calls on the roman treasury sometimes it was not a living itself for which a clerical candidate paid heavily but merely the promise of preferment to the next vacancy or he would pledge himself in the case of nomination to send his first fruits that is his first year's revenue to rome those who could afford the requisite sum might be natives of the country in which the vacant bishopric or living occurred often they were not and the successful nominee instead of going in person to exercise his duties would merely send an agent to collect his dues these dues came from many different sources but in the case of livings principally from the tithe the tax for the maintenance of the church supposed to represent one-tenth of every man's income people usually grumble when they are continually asked for money and medieval men and women were no exception to this rule thus to take the case of england while the wars between emperor and pope left her comparatively indifferent as to the issues involved the growing exactions of the roman curia that touched her pockets awoke a smouldering resentment that every now and then flared into hostility in these times wrote the chronicler matthew paris the small fire of faith began to grow exceeding chill so that it was well-nigh reduced to ashes for now was simony practised without shame every day illiterate persons of the lowest class armed with bulls from rome feared not to plunder the revenues which our pious forefathers had assigned for the maintenance of the religious the support of the poor and the sustaining of strangers at oxford in the reign of henry the third 
1216-72, the papal legate was forced to fly from the town by indignant clerks of the university, or undergraduates, as we should call them today. Where is that usurer, that simoniac, that plunderer of revenues, that thirster for money, they cried, as they hunted him and his retinue through the streets. It is he who perverts the king and subverts the kingdom to enrich foreigners with our spoils. At Lincoln, Bishop Grostet indignantly refused to invest Innocent IV's nephew, a boy of twelve, with the next vacant prebendary of his cathedral. Other papal relatives were absorbing livings and bishoprics elsewhere in Europe, for under Innocent IV began the open practice of nepotism, that is, of popes using their revenues and their office in order to provide for their nephews and other members of their families. He laid aside all shame, says Matthew Paris of this pope. He extorted larger sums of money than any before him. The sums of money enabled Rome to cast down her imperial foe, but the extortion was a dangerous expedient. Throughout the early Middle Ages, the Pope had been accepted by Western Christendom as speaking for the Church with the voice of Christ's authority. In his disputes with kings, the latter could never be sure of the loyalty of their people should they call on them to take up arms against the Holy Father. With the growth of nations and of Rome as a temporal power, a gradual change came over the European outlook. Subjects were more inclined to obey rulers whom they knew than a distant potentate whom they did not. They were also less ready to accept papal interference without criticism. Thus, a distinction was for the first time drawn between the Pope and the Church. When King Hacko of Norway was offered the imperial crown on the deposition of Frederick II by Innocent IV, he refused, saying, I will gladly fight the enemies of the Church, but I will not fight against the foes of the Pope. His words were significant of a new spirit. In the feuds of Gulfs and Ghibellines that racked the twelfth and thirteenth centuries were laid the foundations of a movement to control the popes by universal councils in the fifteenth and of that still more drastic opposition to his powers in the sixteenth that we call the Reformation. End of chapter 15